And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, on today's podcast, I wanted to talk about the monorail. Yeah, I know, I talk about the monorail a lot, but you have to remember that it's one of my favorite things about Disney World. It's one of those things that really makes Disney, Disney. It stands out as being something unique that no one else does. You don't see monorails, except for a few exceptions, used in mass transit around anywhere. So it's kind of neat to think that Disney has really innovated in this sense and done something that's different both at Disneyland and Disney World and to an extent over at Tokyo Disneyland. So it's kind of interesting and intriguing that uh, Disney has done this. The machine is so cool and so sleek and it really screams Disney to you. You always, When you see the monorail, you know right away that's Disney. So if you look back at my archives, you'll see a lot of information about the monorails, how they work, what lines they run, everything they do, and you can go back and review any of those anytime. Uh, I've got a lot of information about how the monorails function. But today I'd like to talk about sort of the future of the monorails and talk about where we're going with them and what uh, Disney has planned for them, as far as we know. And to do that, the first thing I think we need to do is go back in history and talk about what the plan was for the Disney World property. So when Walt envisioned this idea of progress land, of this place, this community where people could live and work, he had this idea where he could have people bring their cars in, they'd park at one end, they'd go to a transportation hub, and then they'd take a form of transportation to get to where they needed to go. Now, if they wanted to go long distances on the property, they would take the monorail to get there because it was better for mass transit across long distances. If they wanted to go short distances, they would use what was the people mover to be able to go short distances and be able to get to somewhere they needed to sort of locally. He had the idea for the community part where people would live, and then he had this idea for sort of the innovation part where people would actually work on researching ideas, thoughts, and coming up with some different things that were kind of interesting and unique and innovative where they would actually work. So the two would meet that way. Now, of course, building something like that would be an expensive proposition. You need, you need a lot of cash influx to be able to really build something that would manage that idea. So Walt's idea was, how about if we build the Magic Kingdom theme park at one end, far away from where the uh, parking is, so that way there was an opportunity to generate some revenue from people coming in and enjoying the park. And on the way to the park, they would pass through this area that was sort of this technology innovation area. So the concept was certainly there on paper. And so he had the parking lot at one end on the southern end, and the Magic Kingdom located all the way on the far end, all the way up on the north part, where you had to take a monorail to be able to get there. Now, this was envisioned to be in stages, so the rest of the property would be built up over time, and you would build in all these innovation pieces and so forth uh, later on. 
Now, as we all know, Walt died before any of this came to fruition, so the company kind of changed directions a little bit and directionally said, you know what, let's go ahead and make some resort hotels and let's do some other things to kind of make sure that we generate some revenue and continue to build on this while we think about what it is we want to do to build this sort of innovation place, this uh, progress land, this Epcot, if you will. So they continued on the plan of having this transportation hub that they called the Transportation and Ticket Center at one end near the parking lot, and then the Magic Kingdom at the other end. So you had to actually take a form of transportation to be able to get over to the Magic Kingdom. Conceptually, that's why the parking lot and the Magic Kingdom are so separated. You don't see that at any of the other parks. This is the only place where that happens because that was originally in Walt's vision for how this whole progress land was going to work and how people were going to be able to get from one point to the other. The monorail was already in the conceptual phases, so that was easy to kind of put into the process and to build the monorail to go from this transportation and ticket center all the way up to the Magic Kingdom. So it worked out great in that sense, where they had the concept and everything was built there. So the problem then is that the monorail has been in use for more than 40 years now. Now, because they had decided to put some hotels along the path there where the monorail is to give people a place to stay to be able to easily get to the Magic Kingdom, they actually built two monorail beams. One they call the Express Loop that went right from the Transportation and Ticket Center to the Magic Kingdom, and one that they call the, the Resort Loop that went from the Transportation and Ticket Center to each of the resort hotels and to the Magic Kingdom. So when they added the Grand Floridian later, because the Contemporary and the Polynesian were original resorts, they actually just put a stop on there to make it easy to put on the monorail loop. And I've talked about this in some detail before. There are two beams, and they go, the monorails go in opposite directions around those beams in order to get to all the destinations. Now, the challenge is, over those 40 years, this has become a widely used mass transportation system. Tens of thousands of people use it every day. It's one of the most heavily used mass transportation systems in the world. And because there are 12 trains and they need constant maintenance, you know, even though these are the more recent trains, most of them were put in service in the last 10 years or so, they still get a lot of wear and tear, and there's a lot of things that happen over time. Because you're talking about a lot of moving parts and a lot of people coming in and off, on and off the trains, it really does take a maintenance crew full-time maintaining these trains all of the time. Now, we have to couple that with the fact that a few years ago, uh, there was the accident on the monorail track. So the nature of the monorail changed from basically being an attraction that people could use and enjoy to being something that was now a mass transportation system and fell into certain government regulations. That's the concession that Disney made along the way to make sure that they could continue to use it on a regular basis and have some government oversight into it but still maintaining their own integrity in the system. So in the past, before this accident, it was a little bit I'll use the word willy-nilly, but I, I, Disney was very well in control of it. But there was different parts to the process and no general oversight to the way that the system worked. Yeah, you had the monorail control person who was supposed to be there and monitoring the station, but you would have trains backing up and going different directions when they were changing lines because of the switches. You had someone else switching the lines. And there was a, it was fraught with potential for problem, and we finally saw a problem happen. And unfortunately, that ultimately led to making changes and having more oversight and making sure that someone was always watching the system so they knew what was happening and they were always in control. So things became a little bit different over time. You saw some things change, and the, uh, that's why no one can ride in the front anymore because it's now a, uh, it's considered a mass transportation vehicle. And uh, very much like buses and airplanes, that's why no one can be up there with the pilot. So it's sort of that, that same principle, or, uh, so that's why they closed off the front. All right, so you have an old system uh, that's been there for 40 years. You've got older cars and trains, 
and you've got an ever-increasing population of number of people who come to visit the parks. How do you efficiently manage who's coming and going, and how do you do everything? So again, looking back in history, if we look back to the early days of the Magic Kingdom, they used to have five cars on a train. And if I'm not mistaken, there were five doors on each car, and each of the doors was a pneumatic door, and the, the person at the station would actually push a button and all the doors would open. And then what would happen is people would uh, get on the trains, and it was uh, two rows of seating per door. They would face each other. And it would be five seats facing forward and five seats facing, facing back for each door. So there would be 10 people at each door, so that's 50 people in each car, five cars, that's 250 people. So each monorail would take 250 people on the uh, transit around to the uh, Magic Kingdom. And the thing about it was they would have to close each door manually. There would have to be somebody walking along after everybody got in and they would close each door. You had to fold up your strollers because they didn't fit otherwise. And load times were long. And when the park first opened in 1971, that wasn't so much of an issue because you had this really cool, innovative thing they were doing. And it really wasn't a huge deal. But over time, they realized, you know, this is not efficient for loading and unloading passengers. From the engineering side, it's kind of cool because you have to stop and think about how would they better unload and unload people. Well, one way to do it is to make the doors open wider, allow people to put their strollers on, allow for easy access with wheelchairs and so forth, and to uh, more efficiently open and close the doors. So in the 1980s, they started piloting this idea of having something like that. Fortuitously or not, uh, they had a fire in one of the monorails. So after the fire, they started thinking about how they could re-engineer the cars and make them better. So they actually purchased the first set of cars that actually had different doors that opened and uh, had different configurations inside instead of being these pneumatic doors that were like single car doors. Now they had these like big open doors like you see today uh, that would double open and you could have more people coming and going. And what they found was, not unexpectedly, they could move a lot more people through the system. So they made a decision to move ahead and move to this next generation of monorails that had the double doors and would have six cars instead of five. And currently, they have about 600 people they can take per monorail. So they more than doubled the capacity of the monorail. And that's huge. You know, you can move more people more quickly to, the, uh, to their destinations. So I think that went a long way to getting them there. Now, when they started doing this, they tried different things with loading and unloading to see if they could move a little more efficiently. They tried moving monorails up to a safe distance so they would basically be ready to unload like one after another. You tried different numbers of monorails on the line so that you're waiting in a space like right behind the monorail, but you minimize the load time that way. So that way, when mon one monorail pulls out, the next one just pulls in and starts loading and unloading so you can efficiently use your time and your space. And they tried different things to try and get this to work. And they've come up with a system that's pretty good right now. Uh, that actually moves people through fairly quickly. And it's fairly efficient to get people on there. They can have either three or four trains on the monorail line, each of the lines, the resort line and the express line. They can have uh, either three or four on there at any time to help uh, minimize the, uh, the wait time. So pretty efficient. And they've tried different things, like at one point in the early 1980s, they had the uh, trains moving the other direction from what you see today. Uh, so they were moving the other ways, and they were trying to see if maybe that would be more efficient if they went the other way and pulled into the station on the other side to, uh, to try and uh, more efficiently move passengers through. So over time, they've come up with what they've got now, and uh, it, like I said, it's pretty efficient. One thing that they did in the uh, late 1980s, maybe the early 1990s, was they added a little clock up at the top of the monorail station. Each monorail station, if you look in the direction the monorail is heading, so uh, the direction the monorail is heading where it's going to exit that station, they have a little clock up there. And when the monorail pulls in and stops, the clock starts ticking. 
What they wanted to do was get every monorail out of the station within three minutes. So they put that up there and actually kept track of it every time. And they would uh, try and incent the cast members to move the monorails quickly through there so they didn't have any wait time that was, that was any greater than that. That was sort of the manual way of getting people in and out quickly was telling them, you know, telling the cast members, let's get every monorail through the station in three minutes. And over time, they were able to get it down there. I believe now, most times, the average time is around two and a half minutes to get monorails out of the station. So pretty amazing that they're able to do that and efficiently get people through. Now, the other problem with an older line is the beams get old, too. Not only the trains, but the beams themselves, the concrete that's out there. So the concrete itself has been replaced, patched, repaired over time. They go out there every once in a while and fix it. And for periods of time, the monorail will be down while they're actually out there working on the lines. They try to pick off-peak times, middle of the night, middle of the day, when not so many uh, guests are moving around between the parks and so forth, and they try to work on the lines. There are periods of time over over the early summers, late springs, when the monorail is not running at all because they're trying to work on the lines and they're trying to get the trains back up and running and they're spending as much time as they can getting everything back up and efficient. They've also been working on more sensors and upgraded sensors uh, to allow for more efficient navigation through the monorail system. The monorail system all runs on pretty much a visual system with the uh, pilot in charge. Monorail Central is always watching where the monorails are on the line, but the uh, pilots are ultimately responsible for making sure that they always know where the train in front of them is. So if you're coming along, you have to have, I want to say it's three train lengths between you and the train in front of you. If you're heading to the next station, you have to actually see the monorail leave that station before you can start to pull into it. See, there has to be a visual confirmation that it's moving. Also, as I've told you in the past, there's something called MAPO in the uh, monorail. And I think I've mentioned before that stands for Mary Poppins, and uh, that's because the monorail system was built primarily with money that was made from the Mary Poppins movie. So there you go. So the uh, MAPO system actually warns the pilots if they're coming up on where another monorail is because it's got these little light sensors that know where the monorail is along the track, and it says, oh, you're coming up on another one, and there is some uh, kills, there is basically a, a shutoff that the uh, monorail will stop running if it gets too close to the one in front. So it's, you know, it's very clever that way, and, but the thing is that they're improving that system now. They're working on making it even more efficient, making things better, and, and making it work more efficiently so that as the monorail goes around the, the, uh, tr- the tracks, it can actually work a little bit more in an automated fashion. I think that's ultimately the goal here, is if you could do it in an automated fashion where you're not limited to a pilot watching and instead this computer is watching and the pilot would override in certain situations, I think you'd have a more efficient system, or at least that's what they believe. So I think that's where they're going. So you're starting to hear talk of there's going to be some uh, more automation that's coming to the monorail. It will tell you when the next train is arriving and what time it will be there and even what color it'll be. And I think they'll be doing that at each station and they'll also be telling you that on the, uh, on the app. Um, don't know if the app is going to come up right away, but that's the plan is to make it available in the app too so that you know when the monorails are coming and going. And that way you have some sense of if you're standing in the station, oh, how long is it going to be till the next monorail? I can look at the signboard and I can see what it is. You know that there are public transportation systems around the country and around the world that do this. Uh, if you live in some of the, some of the really advanced uh, train countries, like, uh, say, places in Europe and Japan, they actually do this very efficiently. They will tell you when the next train is going to be there, and it will be there at that time. So I think that that's where Disney is going with this. They want to have that efficiency and be able to tell you exactly when the train is going to be there, and then keep it in the station for a very finite amount of time and then have it go to the next station. Now, there's one other thing to the uh, older monorails that you have to consider. It's the fact that when you purchase new monorails, and if Disney were to go out and make the capital investment to to put in new monorails, 
they have to consider the size requirements of the stations that they currently have. So if you look around, the width of the station, uh, so say for example, let's just look at the Polynesian. You know how the Polynesian, you come out the door and you see the two, two uh, beams there. And so the platform comes to a certain point, then there's a beam, then there's a, uh, another beam, then there's a little platform on the other side. You have to make sure that the trains will both fit within the platform and next to each other on both the beams. So width is important. And so you have to consider how you're going to uh, construct a monorail from that perspective. Also, the stations are only a certain length, so you have to think about how long your monorails are going to be because you don't want, have, don't want to have to like pull up and have other people get on a monorail in a different spot. So if you're going to uh, get another monorail, if you're going to purchase another monorail, you have to think about that. Height is also important because remember at the Contemporary, the monorail goes right through the Contemporary Hotel, so there's an opening in the hotel where it goes through. They did have to make that opening slightly larger to accommodate the current monorails that they have on the tracks, but you have to consider that if you're going to be thinking about other monorails. So there's more of a capital investment potentially, and you know you have to think about good versus bads, you know, what's the, uh, what's the, what's the win you get versus what it costs you to do it. So maybe it's better to continue working with the current monorails uh, at this point. Also, Disney has to find the right vendor. They've been working with Bombardier for years and years and years on developing the monorails. Um, maybe, they, you know, maybe they do more of it in-house in the future, or maybe they find another vendor or supplier that they look to. You never know what direction they're going to take, but I, you know, I suspect that they're already looking at what their next, next steps are going to be. Because the current monorails they have are fine for now, but at some point they have to think about what they're going to do with them because... Things are going to change. Uh, you know, you'll have more uh, park capacity. You'll have more things happening. Perhaps even Disney wants to think about expanding the monorails at some point in the future. If the price point were to come to a certain point and make it efficient to do that, they would probably want to. And as I said, 40 years ago, the idea was that you went from the Transportation and Ticket Center to the Magic Kingdom. What if they start thinking about, well, where are we going in the next 10 years, the next 15 years, instead of always just thinking about it from the old Walt vision, where should we be? Should we have people just parking in one giant parking lot and then have them distributed out to wherever they want to go? Or do we continue to send them out to different locations the way we're doing it today and let them you know, drive back and forth between the, between the locations? It's a good question, and it's a tough one to answer, and I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I think Disney is probably thinking about that at this point. So interestingly, Disney has been working on uh, some different strategies for routing the monorails. This is the first time I've ever heard of them doing this. So for certain times of the day and certain days of the week in February and March, they're testing something. So you have the express loop monorail that went from the Transportation and Ticket Center to the Magic Kingdom and then looped around and came back. Then you had the other one that was the resort monorail that went from the Transportation and Ticket Center to the Polynesian, to the Grand Floridian, to the Magic Kingdom, to the Contemporary, and then back to the Transportation and Ticket Center, going in the other direction. Now for those of us who were in the know, the resort loop stopped at both the Magic Kingdom and the Transportation and Ticket Center. So either coming or going from the Magic Kingdom, you could actually avoid some of the lines and not hop on the uh, express loop and be able to get in or out of the park pretty easily. So what Disney is doing is they're saying, okay, we know that people do that. Now, in the puzzle here, Disney tried to figure out how could we make this more efficient. That's certainly one variable. Other variables are where do people need to go to? Why would people need to go to the Transportation and Ticket Center if they're staying in the hotels? They probably wouldn't. So it's a question of how do you get people efficiently from one place to another? Now, remember the Transportation and Ticket Center goes to Epcot as well, so there's always the, the challenge of i got to figure Epcot in there if I'm gonna, not going to drop people off at the Transportation and Ticket Center. So let's look at this as sort of a, a, a map. Let's assume for a minute 
that it's uh, five stops. Draw a pentagon on a piece of paper. That's a five-sided object. And if we take the top left-hand corner uh, and call that station one, that would be the transportation and ticket center. Station two would come down the left side. It would be the uh, contemporary resort. And then station three would be along the flat bottom of the Pentagon, and we'll call that the Magic Kingdom. Station four would be along the right side, and that would be the Grand Floridian. And then station five would be along the top right-hand side, where you would have the uh, Polynesian. So as you look at those and you say station one, two, three, four, five, it makes it very easy. We'll keep this really simple, and we'll say the distances between each station are exactly the same, and it takes five minutes to transit them. And we'll say that the load and unload time at each station is two minutes. If you assume that you went from stop one, which was the transportation and ticket center, to stop three, which was the Magic Kingdom, basically it would be the two minutes to load plus the ten-minute travel time, because you have to pass through stop two, which is the contemporary, plus the two minutes to load, plus um, the 15 minutes to travel all the way back to the transportation and ticket center, it would take 29 minutes to loop around. So if you have one train running on the tracks, the maximum wait time you would have is 29 minutes, assuming everything goes right. If you put two trains on the track, you could effectively cut that in half and say that it's about 16 minutes is the maximum wait time. If you put three trains on the track, and again, if everything's perfect and they stay equidistant from each other and everything, uh, you could say that it's uh, about 10 minutes wait time. If you put a fourth train, you could essentially say that it's about a seven-minute wait time between each train. So the maximum you'd wait is seven minutes. So that's pretty efficient, and you could work that out pretty well, and people can get easily from stop one to stop three, the uh, transportation and ticket center to the Magic Kingdom. Now on the resort loop, you've got, uh, you've got all five stops that it does. So you've basically got to multiply it out two minutes at each station for load time, five minutes in between, so it would be a 40-minute round trip uh, from the time that you get on at station one till the time you return to station one would be 40 minutes. So again, with one train on the tracks, keeping it simple, it would, the maximum wait time you'd have is 40 minutes. With two trains, it would be 20 minutes. With three trains, it would be about uh, 12 minutes. And with uh, four trains, it would be about 10 minutes. You know, give or take. I hope I'm keeping it simple enough that you can, you can kind of figure it out. No, and the math on it is a little more complex, but I'm just trying to simplify. Now, if I were to take the grouping that's one, two, three, take your stations one, two, and three on the left-hand side, so that would include the one on the bottom, both of the ones on the left, and so it would be the, uh, the Magic Kingdom, the Contemporary, and the Transportation and Ticket Center. And I were to say, okay, how long would it take to transit between those three? It would take, you know, two minutes to load at the Transportation and Ticket Center, five minutes to get to the uh, Contemporary, and two minutes to load there, then five minutes to get to the uh, Magic Kingdom, and then two minutes to load there, and then 15 minutes to get back. It would take 31 minutes to do the transit. Now, guess what? If I do the same thing with the uh, three, four, and fives, so if I go between the Magic Kingdom, the Grand Floridian, and the Polynesian, it's the same thing. It's five minutes uh, between each, two minutes to load and unload, so the entire circuit would take 31 minutes. So they're exactly the same. So again, keeping it simple, if you put two trains on and everything being equal, it would be 15 minutes uh, maximum wait time between each. The transit would still take 31 minutes, but it would be about 15 minutes you'd wait maximum at any station. Add another train, and it's about a 10-minute wait. Add a fourth train, and it's about an 8-minute wait. So you can kind of figure it, you know, kind of figure it out that way, and you can go through the go through the math, and it works out pretty well. So you're more efficiently using your trains to go from station to station and get people from point A to point B without having to worry about it. The people that would have a problem are the people that are over in the Polynesian or the Grand Floridian Resort who want to go to Epcot. To get to there, they'd have to actually go to, say, the Magic Kingdom, then switch trains and get over to the uh, Transportation and Ticket Center. 
Of course, they always have the option of taking a bus directly from the hotel or doing some other things, but it makes it a little bit more inefficient for them to get to Epcot easily uh, because they have to actually tra change trains. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think Disney is trying to figure out how bad it is. You know, what's the volume of people that would want to get to the uh, Transportation and Ticket Center to be able to get to Epcot on the monorail, as opposed to just walking outside their hotel and getting on a bus? Especially if the wait times will be posted for the buses and you know when the next bus is coming. So it's a, it's a question of, you know, making sure that it's efficient and that they're moving people around the right way. So I imagine this is going to be one of maybe many tests they'll be doing with the monorail over the next several months, maybe the next year or so, as they decide what their next steps are going to be. What are they going to do with the monorail? How are they going to have it move? Are they going to add to it? Do they need different trains? What is it that's going to make it efficient that they can make it really work? I think they're starting to think about where would they be at 50 years of Walt Disney World? What will it do after that? I think it's really kind of interesting that they have this uh, concept where they're starting to think again outside the box of how to make it really efficient. And I'm really fascinated by it, and it's one of those things that just caught my interest, and I was like, wow, i got to talk about that because it really is interesting to me what they're doing with it and how they're doing it. And I think it's, I think it's pretty cool that they're doing it, and I think it's really going to work out well in the long run when they come up with the science behind it to make it really look good and say, hey, this is the way it's going to work. So there you go. That's, what, that's about the monorails and where we are today and what, what the monorails are doing and what the future holds for them. You know, I don't know specifically what they're going to do with it in the future, but I can tell you that they're on a path to thinking about it differently. And as they start to think about the engineering, the science, you know, the, the modeling of how the monorails are going to move around the tracks, it changes everything. So I think this is where it gets really cool and there's some great opportunities for Disney to really move the needle. So there you go. That's my story about the monorails. And I'm sticking to it. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to comment on something. There was a measles outbreak in Disneyland. Now, I'm a big proponent of science. As you can gather from some of the things I talk about, I'm, a big, uh, I'm big into the science of things. And, you know, I'm a big believer in everyone should get vaccinated. And I know I don't want to wade into the political discussion of it. This is not about the politics of it. This is about the science of it and why it's important to get vaccinated. Measles is one of those things that, well, before I get into that, let me read this article that I found. And this is a really interesting article that I, that I found a, a couple of weeks ago. Herd immunity and measles, why we should aim for 100% vaccination coverage. And it uh, comes from Health and Medicine and was written by Marcel Salate. So let me read it for you. The measles outbreak traced back to Disneyland is spread to eight states with as many as 95 cases reported as of January 28th. Media outlets are highlighting the rise of anti-vaccination sentiments. Scientists are expressing their dismay at people who reject sound medical advice and put their own families and communities in harm's way. Measles was considered eliminated in the United States in 2000, but if the first month of 2015 is any indication, this year will easily beat the record number of measles cases recorded in 2014. The narrative during the outbreak, or any measles outbreak, really is, is that measles is a highly transmissible disease. So transmissible is the fact that 90 to 95 percent of the people must be vaccinated in order to protect the entire population or achieve what's called herd immunity. That's partly true. Measles is highly transmissible, not least because people can be contagious days before symptoms develop. But there are three problems with this line of reasoning about vaccination rates. First, the numbers are based on calculations that assume the world is a random mixing. Second, the vaccination coverage is not a perfect measure of immunity in the population. And third, the most, and most problematic in my view, it gives people a seemingly scientific justification for not getting vaccinated. After all, if not everyone needs to be vaccinated in order to attain herd immunity, can it really be so bad if I opt out? 
Let's look at the concept of herd immunity first. The basic idea is that the group, the herd, can avoid exposure to a disease by ensuring that enough people are immune so that no sustained chains of transmission can be established. This protects the entire population, especially those who are too young or too sick to be vaccinated. But how many people need to be immune to achieve this? In order to calculate the number of people who need to be immune for herd immunity to be effective, we need to know how many people will get infected, on average, by an infectious person. Imagine that a newly infected person will, on average, pass on the disease to two other people. Those two will each infect two other people who will then themselves pass it on and so on, resulting in the classical pattern of an exceptionally growing outbreak. In order to stop the growth of the number of transmissions, we need to be sure that each individual case causes, on average, less than one new infection. So let's say that one case leads on average to two more infections. But instead, we want that number to be less than one. That means that at least 50% of the population needs to be immune, so that at most, only one of the two people who might have been infected by an individual will be. So how do we calculate what fraction of the population needs to be immune to reach the herd immunity? First, we need to know what the reproduction number, or R, is. That's how many new cases a single case of infection will cause. Imagine that you're infected in a completely susceptible population, and you pass on the infection to five other people. So that'd be R equals five. In order to prevent an outbreak, at least four out of those five people, or 80% of the population in general, must be immune. Put differently, 20% of the population may remain individually susceptible, but the population will remain protected. So if you can estimate the reproduction number for a given disease, you can calculate the fraction of the population that needs to be immune in order to attain herd immunity. For influenza and Ebola, the number of R is about 2. For polio and smallpox, it's around 5 to 8. But for measles, it's much higher, somewhere between 10 and 20. And because of that, the goal for measles vaccination coverage is, is typically around 90 to 95% of the population. But there's a problem with this calculation. The assumption underlying the calculation for herd immunity is that people are mixing randomly and that vaccination is distributed equally among the population. But it's not true. As the Disneyland measles outbreak has demonstrated, there are two communities whose members are much more likely to refuse vaccinations than others. Geographically, vaccination coverage is highly variable on, this, on the level of states, counties, and even schools. We're fairly certain that opinions and sentiments about vaccination can spread among communities, which may in turn to lead to polarized communities with respect to vaccination. And media messages, especially from social media, may make that problem worse. When we analyzed the data from Twitter about sentiments on an influenza H1N1 vaccine during the swine flu pandemic in 2009, we found that negative sentiments were more contagious than positive sentiments, and that positive messages may even have backfired, triggering more negative responses. And in measles outbreak after measles outbreak, we find that the vast majority of cases occurred in the communities that had vaccination coverages that were way below average. So the sad truth is, as long as there are communities that harbor strong negative views about vaccination, there will be outbreaks of vaccination-preventable diseases in those communities. Those outbreaks will happen even if the population as a whole has achieved the vaccination coverage considered sufficient for herd immunity. If negative vaccination sentiments become more popular in the rest of the population as well, we may start to see more sustained transmission chains. Once those chains are sufficiently frequent to connect under-vaccinated communities, we may again be in a situation of endemic measles. The solution often proposed is that we should do a better job of convincing people that vaccines are safe. I'm all for it, but I would suggest that we should stop bashing our vaccination policies on models that made sense in a world constrained by vaccine supply and aim for 100% vaccination coverage among those who can get vaccinated. This would also solve another problem often glanced over. There are many people who cannot get vaccinated for medical reasons, either because they are too young or because they have other conditions that prevent them from acquiring immunity through vaccination. Herd immunity against measles requires that 90 to 95% of the entire population are immune, 
whereas vaccination coverage is measured as the percentage of vaccinated of the target population, which only includes people who are eligible for vaccination. This means that to achieve 95% immunity in the population for measles, vaccination coverage needs to be higher than 95%. This is the scientific argument for public health policy that aims to get at 100% vaccination coverage. More importantly, there's an ethical argument to be made for the goal of 100% vaccination coverage. It sends the right message. Everyone who can get vaccinated should get vaccinated, not only the people to protect themselves, but to protect those who can't through herd immunity. So I just thought that was an interesting article, and I wanted to present it to you. And I, you know, I'm a big proponent of doing the right thing for the general good. And we should, we should be looking at real science and what science tells us. Look, as a parent, you've got to be smart, and you've got to do the right thing. Talk with your doctor about which vaccines you want to give your child at which time. Most doctors are more than willing to spread out the vaccinations at, at different times. They may say, we have to give them these three, or we want to give them these three at this time. And you can say, you know what, I want to give them one now, one in six months from now, and one in a year from now. And most doctors will go along with that because they understand it's your child. You're trying to take care of them. So that way you're spreading out the vaccines in some way. Yes, there could potentially be other problems that are caused by vaccines, but there's no proof conclusively linking it scientifically to any uh, diseases or anything else that's happening. So just use your best judgment. Something interesting I heard. Um, it was Melinda Gates of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill, of course, was the, one of the founders of Microsoft and their CEO for a number of years. Their foundation provides vaccinations for children all around the world uh, at no cost to, to the families. And her comment was that mothers in Africa are willing to walk 10 miles carrying their child in order to get them vaccinated so that they live a good life. You know, you have to kind of take that from someone who's, who's willing to go that far to protect their child from some of these horrible diseases. And, you know, we're not willing to take that on. And we just need to think carefully about what, what we're saying here. And that's all I'm saying. And again, I don't want to wade into the politics of it. I'm only talking about it from the scientific perspective, what decisions you make and so forth. I hate to see a measles outbreak come out. And you hate to have it linked to something like Disney. You know, if it hadn't been linked to Disney, I probably would have never said anything about this. You know, that's not what I use this podcast for. This is supposed to be a fun Disney podcast. But the message I'd leave you with is you should always be thinking about how can I make sure that I'm protecting everyone, that I'm doing the right things for the greater good. We're, we're all a community here. We're a community of Disney lovers. And we're a community of people who live in the same country. We love the same things. Let's think about kind of each other in some way. You know, you, you know we, we talk about somebody who butts in line or cuts in to get to their family, and, and that bothers us. What about someone who doesn't protect their children and they infect us or our children? That should bother us at least as much, probably more. Because, you know, the minor inconvenience of someone getting in line, eh, that is what it is. The inconvenience of having to have someone get measles or some other uh, debilitating uh, thing is much worse. So all I'm asking you is to please just think and, you know, consider the possibilities and, and be free thinking and, and think about it. You know, think about what, what you're hearing and take it in and consider it. That's all I'm asking. Anyway, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed my podcast. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. 
Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app. 